I appreciate you, man. I think this is a very interesting take on conversations. It's not the usual conversation that people have with artists and makes it much more personable because it's not about what these moments mean to you. It's about what the moment means to the artist. Yep. That's a totally different perspective. You got something going on. Yo, what's up? This is Bum B, Trilogy, repping UGK for life. Long live Pimp C. You are now tuned in to the Nostalgia Mixtape. This my time Welcome back to another episode of the Nostalgia Mixtape. I'm your host, Samana Shrawi, and I just want to say that this is one of the most special episodes we've ever recorded. If you know me, you know how important and impactful today's guest has been to my life and my career. Today we're welcoming the greatest mentor in my life, sometimes my big brother, sometimes my uncle, a living legend, one half of the mighty rap group UGK, one whole of himself, none other than Mr. Bernard Bun B. Freeman. When we first announced this podcast on Instagram, Bun texted me immediately and said he wanted to be part of it. We couldn't get our schedules to sync up for season one, but we finally made it work for season two. We got a shout out Kodoma from Sneaker Summit for letting us tape this episode in his office, literally in his office. So if you hear a phone ringing in the background or something, just know that's because we were at the Sneaker Summit headquarters uh, in Houston, Texas when we recorded this. Thank you, Kodoma. But first, I just, I need to be upfront with y'all. I need to, I need to tell you something. I don't want you to feel bamboozled. Don't want you to feel hoodwinked by what I'm about to say. But you need to know that we let Bun break the rules for this episode. And by that, I mean, when we usually have a musician on as a guest, we tell them you cannot talk about your own songs. That's the rule. But when Bun and I were brainstorming for this episode, he came up with five stories tied to five of his own songs. They're all incredible. They're all stories he's never told before. So you're only going to hear them here on the Nostalgia Mixtape. And we're so honored that Bun felt comfortable enough and trusted us enough to tell these stories. So that's a huge honor and a huge privilege. But look, because this is a special episode, I wanted to get someone special to christen it. And that someone is John Caramonica pop music critic at the New York Times. Now look, I could go on and on about all the amazing pieces that John has written over the years, or how I go back and reread his interview with Bun for Believer Mag minimum once a year, because it's just that incredible. The, the imagery is so vivid, I, I can't believe it. But that's not really the reason why I asked him to do this. No, the reason is because in early 2013, about a month after I graduated college, I was at House of Blues in Houston with Bun at some rap show, and I was feeling really unsure about my future. I had no job leads. I basically just had my raw passion and some interviews I'd done during college, and I didn't know where that was supposed to take me. I remember we were backstage at this rap show. There's dozens of people all around us. It's very smoky, very loud. But the thing about Bun is that when he focuses his energy on you, 
it feels like there's no one else in the room. And this was one of those moments. It was an otherwise very noisy, very rowdy environment. And I remember having this one-on-one talk with Bun in the midst of all this and telling him I wasn't sure about the future. I didn't know which way to go. And Bun looked at me right in the eyes and he said in his very trademark, gravelly, deep voice, do I need to call Cara Monica? <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, John had done some of the best hip hop writing of my teenage years. And I didn't even know if I was ready for that kind of call. So I never ended up asking Bun to make it. But the point is, Bun would have made that call. He would have done it. He would have at least asked John to give me some advice or something. I don't know. And the older I get, the more I realize how rare of a quality that is in someone like Bun. And every now and again, I wonder how different my life would have been if he had made that call. But it's all fine because John and I ended up meeting a few years later at his birthday party in New York City. It was 2015, if I remember correctly, and I was at one of Shea Serrano's book release events with a mentor of mine, Benjamin Meadows Ingram, the author. After the event, he asked what I was doing that night, and I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you need to be at John Caramonica's birthday party. And Benjamin's advice, it's never steered me wrong, so I was like, all right, let's go. So when we showed up, it was like every single writer from New York who I followed online was there. It was amazing. And so Benjamin introduced me to John, and I was like, wow, I can't wait to tell Bun that I finally met John Caramonica. It was a very sweet, full circle moment. So for that reason, I would love it, John, if you would do us the honor of setting up this incredible Bun B episode. So man, uh, thank you for passing me the rock to talk about Bun B, a genius, an icon, a decent human being uh, in a world where decency is in short supply sometimes. Uh, to talk about Bun, I have to go back to 2004, but really I have to go back to 1994. Um, so you have to understand, I, uh, I'm i from Brooklyn. I grew up on New York rap. That is that is the, the foundation of my DNA. Then I got to college, and uh, I worked at the college radio station, uh, WHRB. And I was so overwhelmed by the music that was sent to the station. And I was diligent, and I was excited and I, I listened to so many records that I had never heard before by artists who I had never heard of. And in 94 and 95, I fell for a couple songs, Front Back, Side to Side, uh, and It's Supposed to Bubble, by a group called UGK, which I, I, I had not been familiar with previously. And I would play them on my Saturday night radio show at like three in the morning. And it felt kind of like my secret. They were on Jive, I knew that important rappers were on Jive. Shout out to whoever was doing college radio promo for Jive in 1994 and 1995, because it changed my life. I would play these records and they felt personal to me. And I kind of carried that feeling with me through the years. And I always had UGK in the back of my mind. And I would always kind of keep an ear out for them, try to pay attention to what they were doing, uh, which wasn't always easy being in New York. Uh, and and later in London. 
And when I started writing really regularly for rap magazines, I was always thinking like, huh, I've never really read a good UGK story. Never really read a good Pimp C story, Bun B story. And I'm sure there were a couple things flowing around the 90s, but I had not seen them. And I, I became kind of perversely determined to do one. And so 2004 comes along and I find out that Bun B is playing South by Southwest. And mind you, this is the same South by Southwest that Bun talks about later. It's the same showcase where he plays with Dizzy Rascal. So it's that year. Pimp was in jail. Uh, Bun was playing with Middle Fingers. And I had not been to South by Southwest previously. Uh, it's primarily at the time an indie rock festival. It's not a, not a genre I would have flown halfway across the country to, to immerse myself in. But uh, I got the email from Matt Sanzala. Shouts to Matt. And I said, you know what? I'm going to buy myself a plane ticket and go and meet Bun B. And I did that. I bought the plane ticket. I got to Texas. I went to the show. I met Bun B. I think I had pretty long hair at this time. Must have been quite a sight to see. And I remember saying something to the effect of, I want to write the story about you guys. I, I, I feel like your story hasn't been told. And Bun, to his credit was kind. I think he gave me his number or his email. And eventually, I think it was the next year, I finally did do the UGK story when Pimp was in jail for Double XL. I did do the story when Pimp got out of jail for Double XL. And then I did a big bun Q&A with The Believer, uh, which was a publication that was not ordinarily interviewing artists like Bun. And it was it was such a huge thing to to do that in that venue and really cracked a lot of people's heads open. And in the mid 2000s, being able to share my passion, my interest, my curiosity about Bun and about UGK became kind of uh, central to my identity as a journalist and as a critic. And to this day, those are some of the most special pieces that I've ever written. And I'm very blessed to still be in touch with Bun and consider him a friend and know that on a human level, forget work, forget professional things. That's a person who is reliable on a human level. Work will get done. Pieces will get written. That's all fine. But as far as a baseline, kind, decent, thoughtful, caring human being who also happens to be one of the most vicious coal rappers of all time. Uh, it's hard to beat that. Anyway, listen to Bun Talk. Now that's an introduction. Thank you, John. And now I'm going to let our producer Jason bring up the intro music and take us in to the Bun B episode of the Nostalgia Mixtape. Let's, let's hop in the time machine. Let's go back and let's start in the mid-90s. Here we go. Tell me, can you feel it? Man, nothing can save you. I believe it's that season for getting your papers. Or haven't you heard about the birds? We call it that cheese. In Texas, we get it with ease. It I mean, if you please, with these police, they think they sharp as creases for no reasons, man. They straight up stripping cars to pieces out of suspicion. Or if they thinking you on a mission, ain't no wishing or praying. They saying assume the position. Hands behind your head, not on your knees. You get the case and they get your weight and your G's. Come on. 
I used to ride the pole off the city streets with a chick with pretty feet and a box of fitted sweets. They tried to finish me but couldn't get it done. So somebody told the lost the boy was the one riding dirty. Man, somebody told the lost the boy was the one riding dirty. So, um, Riding Dirty was the first album recorded by UGK where we were allowed full creative control. So uh, as far as Pimp and I are concerned, it's the first real UGK album. Um, Too Hard to Swallow had a lot of samples that didn't clear and the record company actually went in and reproduced the records without us knowing. Like they went to the studio and let somebody create other beats around some of the songs. Super Tight um, was actually a concept album which was supposed to be half the mac and half scarface okay and um again they wouldn't pay for the the clearance of the movie excerpts Uh, and so we ended up scrapping that concept and then coming up with what eventually became super tight the riot dirty was the first time they were like and it was the first time we didn't ask for money Uh, right we were like don't give us we don't want an advance we want equipment okay so give us equipment like pimp was like give me a 48 track board and give me a rack of like ADAT recorders. So basically it was our way of getting equipment so that we could basically record everything we wanted to record at the crib and it would also help with feature work, mm-hmm. which was, which we were finding out was becoming a big source of income for us. Mm-hmm. Um, pimp producing beats for other people and us doing verses for other people. Um, so Riding Dirty is, you know, in our mind, the first actual complete thought of UGK as far as an album's concerned. It's also until somebody kind of can prove me wrong the for, first full hip hop album recorded in Pro Tools. Uh, yeah, we went whoa. to, um, yeah, okay. so N.O. Joe brought us over whoa. to the studio in, um, in Houston and really in Katy and it was this guy named Skip. That's why and that's why when you hear me on Murder saying ask that boy Skip, that nigga Bun Rip is because we were at Skip's house. And so Skip's primary job as an engineer was commercial. Skip, we, we were brought to Skip's house primarily because he had the largest sound library. Okay. Right? So he was doing a lot of, like, AutoZone and Penzoil commercials and stuff where, you know, a lot of the commercial was background effects and whatnot. But he was also recording it in Pro Tools and emailing stuff to people Very from there. Very early days of email. Very early days wow. of email as well. Wow. Right? We recorded all of Ryan Dirty, which I have to say, you know, Joe was a big part of helping us craft that sound that we were able to create during Ryan Dirty. And so I ended up getting the mastered cassette because we still were dealing with, with the cassette age mm-hmm. during Ryan Dirty, um, even though there were CDs and cassettes. But the mastered version of the album came on cassette. So I had a good friend of mine named Eddie. Uh, Eddie's no longer with us. Eddie passed away um, a couple of months ago, well, probably about seven, eight months ago. And um, Eddie was who I would normally hang out with when I would come to Houston. And so I called Eddie and I said, um, I got the new album. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to come to Houston so y'all can hear it. He was like, cool, I'm going to have a get together. I have some people over at the house and and we'll all listen to the album. So a good friend of mine, uh, Dave Marcel, we call him Dela. He was a good friend of Eddie's as well. And and, uh, also his guy Tyrone. Tyrone's from Houston. Um, So we're all good friends. And so we all decided to meet at Eddie's condo off of 59. And so Eddie invites a couple of girls over to, to, um, you know, to hear the album and hang out or whatever. And one of those women happened to be Queenie, who is now my wife. That's so, that's so cool. I didn't know that was when y'all met. Yeah. So we, I go to the house and I'm playing 
the the music and I'm not initially I didn't go to her and strike up a conversation. I was okay. like, she's this is a nice looking girl. Okay. But I initially didn't start talking to her first. Somebody else in the room started talking to Quinny Uh-oh. first. Uh-oh. But I could tell by her reactions, my perceived notion from her reactions was she wasn't being receptive to it right. at all. Come to find out when I decided to strike up a conversation with her, it didn't seem like she was being receptive to me <laughs> either. Uh, but it turns out that just was that's just was her nature at the time. She was not the most sociable person okay. in the world. She's changed. She's come a long way over the last 25 years or so. But um, she was um, receptive enough to exchange numbers with me. Big, big. Um, and so she did not call until maybe two days later. Okay. And I invited her out to a UGK show and that we were having in Lafayette. And Lafayette was a... They had a really hot club called Strawberries. I was going to ask if it was Strawberries. Yes. Okay. So we brought her out to the show. And we're on stage rapping. This is the funniest part about the whole thing. Is that Before you go any further, was this is this one of these shows where you didn't get on stage until it's like 3 a.m. or something? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Strawberries, nobody went on before 2 a.m. Okay. Because gotcha. Strawberries was primarily an after-hours club. Gotcha. So gotcha, gotcha. even though Strawberries would open at about 10, 11 o'clock at night, yeah. no one really went until all the other clubs in Lafayette closed. Gotcha. And then everybody went out to Strawberries. So it's probably about 3.30 in the morning. Okay. And so we're on stage, and I finally see them there, and it's it's Queenie, and it's also, um, if I'm not mistaken, ESG's wife is there, because okay. ESG's wife uh, and Queenie were, were very good friends since childhood. Wow. And so I see them, and I tell them to come up on the stage. And again, Queenie was not the most sociable person in the world, <laughs> so she didn't go up when I invited all the girls up on stage. And then, of course, the first thing Pip said was, who is these hoes? <laughs> Get these bitches off my stage. And Queenie's just standing on the sidelines saying, uh-uh. like, like, see, that's that's why I don't fuck around like that. And then I had to kind of, you know, in between songs, tell them, like, yo, they're with me. It's okay, whatever. And then he finally came up. But um, so, yeah, that was the, the day I met my wife was um, the day I had the full mastered version of Ryan Dirty, which is now, you know, regarded as UGK's seminal album. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what song it would have been playing mm-hmm. when I actually approached her. It, it it wouldn't have been within the first three songs, that's for mm-hmm. sure. So probably somewhere within the middle of the album. Is it was probably... definitely while the album was playing. Yes, absolutely. No, wow. no, because that was the whole point. We played it twice. Okay. We played okay. the album twice. This was back when cassettes were auto reverse. Cassette uh, players were auto reverse yeah. as well, so I didn't have to flip the tape over. Luxury. But there is a there is a skit on Riding Dirty mm-hmm. that um, tells you to flip the that tape. That tells over. you if you're listening to it on a tape, you need to flip that motherfucker over. You didn't have and to if you listen to the CD, you need to let that motherfucker roll. No talk about if you got the tape, you need to flip that motherfucker over. And you did, you know that. And if you got the CD. You need to let that motherfucker roll. Smoke something. I hope y'all smoking, cause we always smoking. And so, so that was, I thought that was like the coolest point of Riding Dirty. And I just want to say for the record that for many years, people thought that I was a person doing the skits mm-hmm. on Riding Dirty, but that's an actual person mm-hmm. that's actually in prison. That's Smoke D. Wow. And Smoke D came home a few years ago. But, you know, Smoke D is featured on from backside to side Mm -hmm. and was literally our first artist but ended up getting in a situation where somebody was trying to kill him and he ended up having to kill them and he ended up going to prison for it and so what we did was we sent him a mini dat 
mm-hmm. recorder mm-hmm. that at the time, you know, most most people listen to music on Walkmans, mm-hmm. right? Which was, a, I don't know, maybe a two and a half inch by four inch sized tape cassette player and recorder in certain instances. So the mini that machine was roughly the same size as that. Mm-hmm. So people thought he was just walking around listening to music on a Walkman when he was actually walking around with a mini dad recording, recording oh that's so cool recording himself in the penitentiary so when he says i see these motherfuckers kissing there's someone he's there. literally watching somebody kiss <laughs> and the the guy that's um there's like a, a latino guy i think he was colombian or whatever yeah. that's talking about these motherfucking snitches man yeah. i don't know i try to help black people and they did man spook got me he says something that i understand I don't know why I got this there, but I'm gonna tell you the truth. This motherfucking penitentiary fuck out. Our own color people, they snitch each other right here. They don't want you to say bye. They don't want you making no money, jealous people. It's more cool dude. He is straight out, you know, like here, a lot, a lot of cool dude right here. There are a lot of goddamn color people right here. I don't know what happened with them. They be snitches. You know. Oh, over there, over there on the other side, I got in trouble with one man over there. I just trying to do the best to him, happen him. That motherfucker, no good motherfucker. Jealous. I can take it. Go ahead, you get it. I can take it this year. I got you guys now, man. You go ahead. So what happened was, uh, apparently he was selling drugs to young black dude the young black dude got caught and snitched on him and that's how he ended up in prison but i think that dude's still in prison to this day i don't know if the dudes kissing are still in prison but and so that's literally like an inside view of like day-to-day life actually in in prison and the whole concept of riding dirty itself as an album is a day in the life of someone on the living on the south side of houston right so that's why if you look at the photo shoot the photo shoot is us getting jacked. Like the album cover is us turning around and look back, looking back through the window. But what we're seeing is somebody uh, pointing guns at us. Oh wow! So I didn't if, know there was that whole narrative. So when you open up and you look at the pictures mm-hmm. inside, you'll see dudes holding guns like AKs yeah. at us, yeah. and it's the Body Boys. Oh wow! So Body Boys, and, yeah, and that's outside of Screw's house. That's it, right in front of Screw's house. Wow. We were all hanging out at Screw's house oh, that day man. while we were shooting pictures, and um, it's C notes. Suburban that we're sitting in. Okay. He had a Suburban on blades. I'm not gonna say whose AK it was because okay. they probably still have that AK. Okay. But okay. I just w- I wouldn't try to buy any boys. Yeah. On yeah, any yeah. given Sunday. <laughs> you know, just to throw that out there. But that is um, that's why it's very hard for me to pick a moment from that album on any particular song because mm-hmm. the actual the album itself to me is a very big moment, one professionally and then also personally. Wow. Wow. Um, that's amazing. So the next the next song I have on here is uh, Scarface's "They're Down with Us" featuring UGK. And now your bomb smokes, and now your gun holds. Got your niggas by your side, and the topic of your every. 
conversations, let's rock, but take five, and then put on that board to the side, cause you know as well as I know, that you don't wanna die, give us a fuck about your crew, what they wanna do, them niggas break the cock, they straps, we cock straps too, then we blast on fools, fuck war, we smoke sticks too, like black raw, we spray criminals, fuck an interview, Jay Prince who ethnic cleanse like Hitler used to do, free on the interview, I'm coming from a school where if a nigga mouth it out, we ain't the hit it too, This is a remake of uh, Boogie Down Productions, Karis One song. Still number one. Right, still number one. And myself and Pimp and Scarface were all big fans of Karis One. For the most part. Pimp actually, this would be a, this is a funny side note. <laughs> the entire conversation of country rap tunes yeah. comes from Karis One. Karis One made a statement at one point saying that if you're not from New York and you're and you're you're an MC or a DJ, but you're not from New York specifically. If you're not from like you know the five boroughs of New York, mm-hmm. you're not you're not hip hop. You're just making rap music. Wow. So wow. Pimp was very you know upset about this because we, we were big KRS One fans. We actually met KRS One the day we signed at Jive Records. Right after we signed our contract, um, when we walked out the office to kind of celebrate, we see KRS One coming down the hallway. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, yo, Karis One, we're big fans of whatever. We just, you know, we're here to sign with Jive Records. And he was like, he was like taking back, like, wait a minute, did you sign yet? Yeah. And we were like, yeah, we just signed. He was like, fuck. You know, and so we went from being wow. the happiest we had ever been to basically like jaws drop, kind of like maybe we just threw away our whole lives. He, w- he, he was going to try to tell you don't sign. He was going to try to tell me not to sign Jive Records. Wow. And I literally, the ink wasn't even dry wow. at that point. And so Scarface calls us up to record, and of course, all the recording at Rap-A-Lot back then was done in Mike Dean's house. Okay. So there was a, there was a Rap-A-Lot. Out, was out where I'm from, right? Cypress? Yes, out on Cypress. Now, wow. there was a place closer to the Rap-A-Lot offices that was a recording studio, but okay. if something had to be, like all the mixing and mastering was done by Mike Dean in Mike Dean's house. Okay. And if you were like short on time, or if like something needed to be replaced, or it was a last minute addition, it had to be recorded at Mike Dean's house, uh, which was always very interesting because yeah. Mike Dean was a lot different than he is now. Yeah, he was much more of a wild character. His girlfriend at the time was probably clinically insane, <laughs> and his dog—he had dogs. Now okay. I was never really a big dog person, but his dogs were, were wild. I don't know if they got a hold of some of the shit that was in the house, but the dogs eventually like scratched holes in the carpet and ate holes in the wall. But Great. that's neither here nor there. Great. So we go to the house, we record the song, 
and it comes out on the Scarface album. And maybe about maybe three months after it comes out, Box has its annual birthday bash. Mm-hmm. And one of the people that were performing at the birthday bash was DMX. Big, I was a big DMX fan, just, you know, ever since um, Get At Me Dog, which right. there goes the dog reference for that as well. <laughs> and um, so people brought me in to introduce me to DMX. Mm-hmm. So they're like, yo, DMX, this is Bun B from UGK. Oh, okay, that's what's up. Nice to meet you. And they were like, oh, you don't know who UGK is? They were like, he's like, nah, nah, don't, sorry. <laughs> and it was like, well, you know, they, they got the record with Jay-Z, Big Pimpin'. Nah, 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 I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. They're like, well, they also got the, the record Sippin' on Scissor with yeah. 3 Mafia. Nah, nah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Wow. And then, like, he, 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 he thought for a minute. He's like, Bun B, you got the song with Scarface, right? Wow. And I'm like, yeah, I do got some. It's like, yo, you want a Rolling Broadway on Broadway? You got your broad out on Broadway, the Broadway, and the broad day. I was like, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, that's where you know me from. And so, you know, obviously, you know, you know, everybody's a Scarface fan. DMX was actually a, a good friend of Scarface, but also a big fan of Scarface. Mm-hmm. And so, for him to know me from that song, for me, I was actually more proud of that than Big Bimpin or Three Six Mafia's record in that. Right. My verse on number one on Scarface's album, because this was actually the first time I was actually on a record with Scarface. Mm-hmm. So I had to bring my, my strongest lyrical game of course. on that record. And so at, at that point, to me, even though time will argue that murder is my best, that to me was my best verse that I had ever recorded at that time, because I actually got to say exactly what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it. Mm-hmm. And so even though I wasn't remembered for what I thought he would remember me from, the fact that that was the moment in time where DMX was actually aware of Bun B was absolutely fine by me. I'm good with that. Right. I can sleep good at night knowing that right. DMX do some of my lyrics by heart. That's so cool. When I hear that, I, what's crazy is I, I took notes before we met up and I wrote down your verse on that and your verse on, on murder actually together. I paired them together in my notes. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like um, when I hear those verses i know you have a very like deep palette that you pull from when you when you write but when i hear those verses i hear a lot of big daddy kane and the fact that like it's like you squeeze out every single possible rhyme that you could think of for like a specific rhyme that you're going for you're very close on that i i I, i'm more i feel like i've always felt like i was more in the vein of cool g rap which is still that same juice crew yeah right even though Big Daddy Kane was incredibly syllabic, I really always tried to pattern myself more aggressive because Big Daddy Kane could rap his ass off, but he was a player. Okay. So I felt like he was more akin to Ch- to Chad, to okay. Pimp Style. But you are drawing from the right set of references because a lot of my lyrical influence did come from the Juice Crew and Molly Mall. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the last UGK album, we y'all, actually- Y'all had a song with them. We did a song with, uh, produced by Molly Mall with Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap. And the whole point of it was, we were big fans, not just of the Juice Crew and of course the Symphony, which is arguably the best posse cut ever performed. The the Symphony video began, cause it's, it's all based on like a cowboy Western, right? right? The video. And so the beginning of it is Marley Mall at the piano. He's the piano guy, right? And so he's playing a piano refrain at the beginning of it. And, but if it only existed on the video like it was never a fully produced song 
and so but we were always big fans of like interludes right like all the dj quick grooves and and different like musical interludes and stuff like that the p rocket seal smooth uh, gangstar stuff like that but and so that's why woodwheel is actually an interlude to the beginning of a ghetto boys record so woodwheel is us rapping over an interlude that jay prince done oh yeah so but nobody ever rapped to it so when we did woodwheel we asked jay prince could we rap to that and so we reached out to molly Marlin and was like yo whatever happened to that piano interlude from the beginning of the symphony video nobody ever rapped to it he was like nah not he said i never even really did a beat and we were like yo can you make us a beat and can we get some people from the symphony on the record and so he reproduced the beat we got in touch with big daddy kane wow. and cool g rap and that's wow. like our version of the symphony listen closely to your attentions undivided many in the past have tried to do what i did just the way i came off then i'm gonna come off stronger and longer even with the drum on. i'll keep on going and flowing just like a river i got a whole lot to give so i'm a giver little at a time new trails i'm blazing action is in effect and always stays in yeah just like a shot from a cannon i am the man in charge and i'm a planet a jam strong enough that it can lift your soul i'm the originator and my rhymes are made of gold once you hear the capital a rapital stay with you for a while it won't go away unless you force it because it stays with you my friend and if you force it away i'ma hit you again I believe that's me. Craig G, light up the mic for the symphony. The gym is dedicated to all unoptimistics. That thought I wasn't coming out with some exquisite rhymes. But that's alright, cause now I'm back to kill all the rumors and straighten the facts of me. Not rocking rhymes like I always used to, but you jumped on the tip when you heard me in the juice cruise. You said, mm-mm-mm, ain't that something? No, Craig, I heard you in that jam and it's pumping. I apologize. Oh, yeah, and uh, can I have your autograph of me and my grandma? That's how I'm living. On surprise mode. Don't even sleep. Try not to keep your eyes closed. Because if you do, when you awaken, the so-called spot will be taken. I'll take it over like a greedy executive. Because on the mic, my perspective is to be the best in all rap events. And since I have a call, I call experience. No, next up. Yo, I believe that's me. Light up the mic for the symphony. Yo, Marley gives a slice. I get nice in my voice. is twice as horrifying as this in price. Go steep till you fell in a spell of a sleep. And while I'm counting the money, you count sheep. Now, jam! I don't know what y'all been thinking about, but I think this right here is about to shut them down. Hey, this damn. Make niggas walk slow, talk low, when white choke go. Me casa be siete uno ocho. Brooklyn motherfucker handle this. Pardon Spanish and French. Okay. I stay clever like Mayweather with lay level. Take your face ever. One of the greatest ever. Beyond ringing bells. My name's so demanding shit. I got the swagger that'll leave the code of fan. Hope you niggas understand it. I stay sucker free. The next cane up in the game. You ain't got enough to be. Your career lasts a week. That'll be luckily. Fuck with me. The rap game. I need protective custody. I'm the same thug to be. Surrounded with women. Gave the game true religion before you found it. And devil feel the wrath of cane. And you cannot escape the hip-hop version of the ring And you just watch the tape And keep your eyes on the niggas in noir Triple black in the candy painted car That's the color of ball Me and my brother on par with Nam, nigga We trail working the wheel Understand, nigga, I'll smother and split a bitch down to the tendon High pressure, if you don't break your ass bending 
and I'm way past sitting in them series of warnings. You flex with me tonight, player, you're dead by the morning. Bump beat it, the best ever. Breathing all the seas from the south to the midwest. Cali to the east, go to any city, nigga, and bring my name up. I better eat the best rapper they got in the game up. Call a nigga up, be mail him a chirp, and make a meal out his motherfucking ass and then burp him. Don't fuck around, I'm not your little homie. I'm the king of the underground, so whack like you know me. So cool. That was that was always one of my favorite songs on that album. Did did y'all was was any of that done in person? That was all. No, no. This was okay. definitely the age of email and, okay. and whatnot. Gotcha. So, but then another thing, I guess, that you said that came from Scarface. Speaking of uh, down with us, is um, him giving some music to Tupac. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure exactly what the time was, but I know it was it was realistically um, within the the last week of Tupac's life. Um, Scarface recorded Smile, which is Tupac's last recording session. Mm -hmm. And during that session, Face had just gotten a copy of Riding Dirty. Wow. And so Face was like, yo, you know these dudes? You ever heard of these dudes? UGK? He was like, nah. Pac was like, nah, I never heard of them. He was like, yo, take my album. You need to listen to these dudes. They're tight, whatever. And so Pac took the album from him, listened to the album, and called the Outlaws and was like, yo, I don't know who these dudes are. I never met them before, whatever. I just got the album, but they talking about the same kind of shit that we talking about. Wow. And in his last days, Pac was getting away from Thug Life and was right. trying to bring a collective MCs together. He was working with Buckshot mm -hmm. from um, Boot Camp Click, mm -hmm. and they were like joining forces with MCs and trying to bring MCs together on one accord to promote the Black Agenda. And so his his point of view was that I don't know who these dudes are. But we need them down with us for this new movement, mm -hmm. and he was dead within the next couple of days. Yeah, which is crazy because I remember I was on promo. I was in L.A. on promo when Tupac died. We were on promo, and Richie Rich from the Bay Area, mm -hmm. um, who's Tupac's cousin, mm -hmm. had just signed to Def Jam and recorded an album, and was having his listening party in L.A. So mm -hmm. Method Man was staying in our hotel, and so. We were all, we met Method Man in the lobby of the hotel we were staying in, and we all went out into our promo van to smoke weed. And we were just listening to the radio, and then Daz called in, and Daz was crying. Oh, man. And he announced that Tupac was dead. Wow. And Meth had just recorded with him. The, that got my mind made up? Absolutely. Wow. With Tupac on the album. Oh, I love that song so much. Um, so it was, um, it was a very, very rough moment we you know it was, it was grown man crying you know which yeah. is you know that's definitely one of those moments i hold i hold very close to me because i was yeah. actually in la when tupac died is that where your verse on the psk 13 that song uh, where you say like i never thought i'd see the day when like a man will kill another man over a rhyme is that where that comes from it might have been i might have drawn that reference i'm not sure exactly the time frame when i when I recorded that but mm -hmm. you know now that you say that I could probably go back and look at the release date of mm -hmm. PSK 13's album because I just saw it pop up on iTunes as a suggestion mm -hmm. for me which is always weird <laughs> when, say, when Apple suggests <laughs> records that I'm on to me <laughs> um, but uh, you know I think you might have made a, uh, an amazing call right there I, I would not be surprised if we're, that's where I drew that reference from wow I remember the first time I heard that, I was thinking, like, I, I didn't look up the time frame, but I was like, oh, right. that's, that's got to be... Because I feel like there were several there were several songs that came out after that where people, like, Black Star coming out with 
definition and saying like too many rappers dying. Whatever. Right. It was um, a very it was a very wild time to be a rapper, especially a rapper that dealt in um, what we call we would always call it reality rap. The you know mm-hmm. the media gave it the term gangster rap, but anything mm-hmm. that was street affiliated or street adjacent kind mm-hmm. of music, um, you had no idea what was going on. So, you know, and a lot of people started taking traveling on the road and doing shows out of town a lot more serious. And I always took it serious because my whole thing was always to make sure we all got home. Mm-hmm. I still think about that to this day. You know, I just, anytime people leave with me to go out of town, I feel like it's my my duty to bring them back home safe and sound. Because otherwise, if I don't, I'm the one that has to call the parents or the wives and tell them that their loved one who left with me is not coming home. Yeah. Whether it's my fault or not. Yeah. And one of those calls is too many. Yeah. And on a lighter note, we got two songs left on your list. Okay. First one in chronological order is Beyonce's Check On. Check on it. Um, I had just gotten back in town, and Matthew Knowles called me. It was like a Sunday. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember. It was a Sunday. I just got back in town, and Matthew Knowles called me, and he was like, um, hey, man, we're working on this song for Beyonce, mm-hmm. and um, we want you on the record. Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely. Why would I not want to be on a record with Beyonce? And this is like in the early stages of her as a solo artist, right? Right. And so he's like, if you want to, Slim Thug and them are doing, Slim's doing a verse, and I think they're recording right now. Maybe you could call them and link up with them. So I called Slim, and at the time, Slim had a studio off of 45 on the north side. Mm. And so I, I called Slim. He's like, yeah, we over here, G. You know, Slim, we over here, G. <laughs> Come through, G. <laughs> and uh, so we went through we went through there, and we um, recorded the song. It ended up being Check Up On It. Mm-hmm. It was a Hype Williams video. We, we got the call that it was going to be a video for it. It was... It was for the movie The Pink Panther, Mm -hmm. but The Pink Panther actually wasn't going to have a soundtrack. It was only going to have this song to promote the movie. And so they told us that Hype Williams was was directing the video. So my first thought is, I got to be the one that blows the smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because that was the thing at the beginning of Hype Williams. The Hype Williams video (laughs) is always somebody blowing smoke in super slow motion. (laughs) So that's all I care about at this point. I don't care about anything else in the video. I want to be the guy that blows the smoke. So as soon as I get on set, hey, what's up, man? Hey, can I blow the smoke? (laughs) He's laughing like you. He's like, yeah, B, you can blow the smoke. I'm like, all right, cool, so whatever. (laughs) So this is also in the earliest stages of Jay-Z and Beyonce as a couple. Right. So we're on set, and so Slim is there. Boss Hog High Laws are in the building. So Slim's there with about four guys. I'm there. I got my homies from Brooklyn, my boys Hood, and my boy B.O. And then also... My guy, Keith, who's one of the 
founders of FUBU. This is in New York. This is in New York. Okay. And so we're on this, we're on the set, and we're filming the video. And if you look at the video, there's a lot of kind of skimpy outfits. Right. Right. And Queenie's there also, so it's not like I'm like sitting there salivating over another woman. But we're like, yo, this is crazy. Beyonce dancing in this short skirt, and then. She's dancing in like a bikini right. type of thing, you know. And also, you've known her since she was very young, right? I've known her for many years, but I wouldn't say that we had the closest of relationships, okay. right? Um, my relationship was more so with her father okay. than, than her at the time. Which now I can actually say I have Beyonce's number in my phone, <laughs> but it's it's under a code, so you wouldn't know who it was. You wouldn't very be able smart. to find very smart. Beyonce's number in my phone. But anyway, so we're on the set of the video, and... Obviously, there's a lot of single men in the room. There's a, a lot of single men in there. And they're all just staring at Beyonce dancing, like, right. and kind of in awe, you know? Because right. none of us have ever really been this close to her as a, as as the full-fledged superstar that she is now. Yeah. Right? Which I have another Beyonce story I'll tell after this. Okay, okay. And so Keith, one of the owners of FUBU, actually had, this was when cameras were digital. This is when cameras were transitioning from film to digital. Okay. So he had a camera, so he's not only able to take pictures, he's actually able to shoot video. And while all of this is happening, while they're dancing, I think this is during the scene with the chairs. So it's like her and several other girls, and they all have these short skirts on or dresses, whatever, yeah. and they're all dancing seductively on the chair. They've got a leg up on the chair, so you can kind of see the thigh and maybe a little bit of butt if you're staring hard enough. And um, Jay-Z calls. And talked to one of her assistants. If I had to guess, it would be her cousin Angie okay. that he would have talked to, because Angie was has always been a right hand to Beyonce. And he's like, "Yeah, how's the video going? What's well, going good? Are the guys there? Yeah, they're there. You know, it's them and <laughs> some of their homies. And we're the only. All of the guys that are with us are the only men there. And well, let's, let's say this: there were other men there, but they weren't straight. Sure. So." He's like, wait a minute, how many dudes are there? <laughs> and so she's like, oh, it's about nine or ten guys, I guess, over there. Where are they now? They're near, they're in the soundstage. They're kind of watching, you know, <laughs> watching her film. What is she wearing? <laughs> they describe the outfit, and he's like, yo, clear the room. <laughs> wow, wow. So they immediately come over to us, and they kick all of us out, mm-hmm. send us up to our dressing rooms. Wow. And we're told to stay there. Wow. Until we have to shoot. Okay. We're not allowed to watch Beyonce dance anymore the in the video and so um i guess beyonce gets wind of the call mm-hmm. she comes up and she apologizes wow to us for having us having to you know i'm so sorry you guys had to leave the room but jay's not comfortable and you know we're like no is. we all we, yeah. we understand fully right <laughs> we're, we're like no it's no problem we're happy to be here right but like, from my point of view i don't give a shit about none of that i'm just i'm really in awe of watching beyonce shoot a video and the, mm-hmm. the main thing we're in awe of is the work ethic right right because this entire video is done in one day. And these costume changes, the hairstyle, the makeup, all of that stuff is being done in real time. And then she immediately goes up. And no matter if she has on, like, in the in the dress skirt scene, she's got on, like, a smaller heel shoe. Mm-hmm. And at one point is when they kind of combined, I want to say, like, a bape shoe with a heel. Mm-hmm. Like, um, her, her, her stylist at the time was this guy named Ty, which we, we know very well. Ty is actually... From Houston as well. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, we know him very well. Queenie and I are really good friends of him, and of his. And she's doing these costume changes and all this dancing and choreography and everything. And she's not breaking a sweat. Like it's wow. really something to behold. And I've been able to see this later, performing with her at the rodeo. I watched her do like 
a full dress rehearsal. Like Beyonce doesn't halfway do anything. Right. Her her key to success has been the ability to do fully choreographed dance routines while maintaining breath control enough to sing the songs that she needs to sing it's unbelievable. and maintain the notes. And yeah. this is only because she doesn't halfway do anything. Like yeah. they asked us to come to dress rehearsal for the rodeo mm -hmm. and she was literally doing the entire show. The whole show. Right? Not for just, just like walking through not it. just not just our song or yeah. certain song. She's doing the entire show. Right? In full costume, full uniform, whatever. And so but she she was very gracious about everything and we totally understood why. Jay was like, mm -hmm. yo, I don't need these guys looking at my woman like this. <laughs> Again, these are the very early stages of their relationship. Right. And so um the video comes out and everything, and of course I'm blowing the smoke and it's baller. And uh, I remember asking Hove about it. He was like, "Yeah, man, I'm not gonna have y'all looking at my girl like that." You know, I say, he was like, "I called. I was like, who's in there? What are they doing? And what she got on? And when I realized what she had on, y'all had to go. You know? And um, it, it's again, this is a really a tribute to you know her work ethic, her talent, and also Jay's forward thinking that he's realizing you know he's got the hottest chick in the game wearing his chain right, right, right. Um, a funny story though about Beyonce back when they were much younger we had a recording session this was actually the day that UGK and Fifth Ward boys recorded Swang Wide uh, so there's a lot of our guys in there there's a shit ton of Rabbalai guys in the building yeah. and Destiny's Child is recording in another room in the studio okay. and so Pimp goes in they're like Destiny's Child over. he's like oh, I want to meet them they tight you know he goes in and they, you know, they he introduces himself, and I guess Beyonce was kind of taken aback that she was beating Pimp C. Again, right. this was before Destiny's Child was a worldwide phenomenon. And so he comes back in the studio, and we're, we're recording and hanging out, and Matthew Knowles comes in, and he asks, Pimp, can I talk to you for a minute? And so they leave out for a couple of minutes, and Pimp comes in, and he's dying laughing. And we're like, what what's, we're like, what's wrong? He's like, yo, Matthew Knowles just told me don't fuck his daughter, man. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't fuck my daughter. <laughs> and she was only like, I think, 18, 19. I think. like, man, I'm yeah. not, I don't want your daughter. She's young. Man, I don't want your daughter. But it's just the point that, <laughs> again, I imagine that in the moment, in their younger ages, getting to meet Pimp C, right, right in, UG, in the height of UGK, right, was right. a big deal. And she might have been taken aback a bit. And you felt concerned about losing his daughter to a rapper. And I guess that was a valid point because he eventually lost his daughter to <laughs> a rapper. <laughs> That's so amazing. I did not, you've never told me that story before. That's incredible. <laughs> I just wanted those Beyonce stories that it's because I never have a context to tell that story. Okay. Gotcha. Right? But since we're overtly talking about Beyonce in the moment, I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, I got another Beyonce story. <laughs> but the men, in, the men in Beyonce's life obviously feel the need to protect her from people like us. And you know what? I totally get it. Hey man, I, I, look, even though I was with my woman or whatever, I was the only guy there who was not taken. And the rest of those dudes were wolves. Yeah. They were definitely wolves yeah. in the moment. Funny, the other side, no Slim Thug ended up dating Latoya Luckett. Right, yeah. So he got close. He got so close. He, he got close. Proximity so close is key. Yeah. Proximity yeah. is key. <laughs> <laughs> so the last song that you have on your list is one of my personal favorites, Dizzy Rascal, Where's the G's? 
Liar, liar, pants on fire, you're not gangster, you're not street You just make yourself sound gangster when you're rapping on the beat You ain't got yourself in no life-threatening situations yet You're no dealer, you're not bullying, you just get yourself in debt You're a fan of hip-hop wanking when you hear them rappers talk Love to sit and listen, but we know that you don't walk the walk What's with all the fake aggression? I can see that it's not true I'm no killers, I'm no gangsters, and they never heard of you You ain't robbed nobody, shank nobody, you ain't Bust no gun. You ain't seen no ghetto action. Who do you think you're fooling, son? You should pull your trousers up. You know it ain't your type of look. You're no player, you're no pimp. I think that you should read the book and settle. Find yourself a pretty girl and settle. You know that if it's on that you ain't drawing for no metal. I know them rap songs got you thinking you're some kind of G. Well, if that's the case, and case of robbery, what will be, will be. Boy. Where's the G's? Where's the stars? Where's the whips? Where's the cars? Where's the cribs? And where's the yards? Where's the dough? Where's the cash? Where's the holes? Where's the gash? Where's the blicks? And where's the mash? Too many mocks on the TV. How many real crooks on the TV? All I hear is dead crooks on the TV. Being real these days ain't easy. Too many mocks on the TV. How many real crooks on the TV? All I see is bare pop on the TV. Being real these days ain't easy. Well, it's big bum being I'm back again. Talking that shit on the track again. Too many motherfuckers be lying about selling, buying, and trafficking. I'm like, really though, what's happening? You boys talk about that crack again? Cause we don't believe you need more people. Y'all might as well just pack it in. Show me the paper you stacking in. Show me the blocks you got on hold. Show me your workers. Show me your shooters. Let me see the neighborhood you control. Let me see if you a boss. And if motherfuckers is scared of you. And if somebody try to take your shit, let me see what you prepared to do. Are you ready to go to war? Are you ready to shoot to kill? Are you really gonna man up or bitch up? Just tell the truth for real. Are you ready to take a life? Walk up to him and squeeze the trigger. I don't think so, cause you ain't built like that. So just be easy, nigga. Cause you know you ain't about no drama. And you know that you really don't want it. So stay the fuck out the way when them trill ass niggas is on it. Dizzy Reds and UGK, you know we stay connected. Trill recognize the trill, so just respect it and check it and tell me. Where's the G's? Okay, so I, I met Dizzy Rascal at South by Southwest. This was many years ago when rap was not actually a part of South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. It was primarily rock groups, mm-hmm. punk rock groups, heavy metal groups kind of thing. There wasn't really a rap contingency. And so Matt Sanzala, who was heavily involved in Southwest, South by Southwest booking and hip-hop booking worldwide in general, because most of the people I know who ended up going overseas to perform, got that, from the South anyway, got that opportunity via Matt Sanzala. So Matt calls me. He's like, hey, there's this festival in Austin. It's called South by Southwest. And um, I want to book you guys for it. It's not a lot of money involved, but I think it's a great opportunity. And I'm like, sure. You know, I trust Matt's judgment. You know, Matt's a very stand-up individual. You know, he's very transparent, right? So it's not like he's saying, hey, there's not a lot of money and he's pocketing it. It, there's literally, if he says it's not a lot of money, it's not a lot of money. He's a very straightforward guy. But when he says, I think it's a great opportunity, I tend to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I've been able to make a, a, a lot of really good footing in this industry, thanks to that. He's a really good friend of mine, we still talk. And so he books me on the show, and it's me as a solo artist, because Pimp is locked up at this time. Mm-hmm. Paul Wallen Chameleonaire, who mm-hmm. are still a group at this time, right. and Dizzy Rascal who I'm not familiar with at the time. So he sends me a link to Just a Rascal, and I listen to the song, I'm like... And so at this point in my life, the only frame of reference I have on London, England, and the entire UK, for that matter, is the Queen, Big Ben, Parliament, 
you know, tea and crumpets or whatever the fuck. That's all I know about okay. London. So when I hear this kid rapping and I'm like, I didn't know. The only only other rapper that I'd ever heard from London, um, I can't even think of his name right now. Was it the Street? Derek G, maybe? No, no I don't know who that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say it was Derek G. It's something, it's mm-hmm. something with a name and an initial. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was only Dizzy Rascal and the Streets mm-hmm. as far as rap was concerned. I'm like, I like this this song. This is pretty interesting. And so when I get there, I see him. And the big fashion at the time was Ivisu, mm-hmm. right? And Ivisu was not sold in Houston at the time. So you had to go to like New York or Chicago or somewhere to actually get Ivisu jeans. So Dizzy shows up and Dizzy has on, this is was a big deal at the time for anyone that's old enough to remember how big Ivisu was. He was the first person I saw that had the one that had the logos all over the pants. Oh, wow. Which was a very big deal. Yeah. Because up until that point, Ivisu jeans also only had logos on the pockets. Mm-hmm. So I, my whole thing was, yo, I need to find out where the fuck he got these jeans from. <laughs> you no. Know? So I go up and I introduce myself to the kid. And he's probably 18, all of 18 years old yeah. at this time. And um, he's like, yo, I got him in New York. You know what I'm saying? shopping in New York. I bought him in New York. I'm like, fuck, I got to go to New York to yeah. get these jeans. <laughs> And um, <laughs> I watch him get on stage, and just the energy of this kid is amazing. I'm like, yo, this kid's all over the place. Plus, his breath control is stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the way he's able to really spit this rhyme, not really in a twister sort of way, but just in the point of, like, people that literally talk fast, so obviously they're going to rap fast. And he was one of those kids. He was just a fireball, you know, of fucking energy. And I'm like, I need to, I'm going to keep my eye on this kid. Mm-hmm. So we exchanged numbers, and... We ended up becoming very good friends. And probably over the next two and a half, three years, he goes from being this up-and-coming rapper in the UK to literally the biggest deal Mm -hmm. in the UK. At one point, he has the biggest record in the UK, you know? And so during this time, I'm telling Pimp, I'm like, yo, we need to get this kid on on one of our records, we'll be mm-hmm. way ahead of the game because right. nobody's really doing songs with British rappers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we need to, and he's the biggest one. I'm like, we need to get this kid on the album. And Pimp would, Pimp and I didn't see eye to eye about a lot of things, right? Like, Pimp didn't like Slum Village, but he loved Jay Dilla, right? So there were okay. things that he could tolerate, things he could, like, the beats are tight, but I don't want to hear this shit. I don't yeah. want to hear what they're talking yeah. about. <laughs> Whatever. Um, and so we put him on the album and he um, he's you know delighted by the the gesture. He's a big fan of UGK, and so he's like, "Yo, I'm doing Glastonbury. Do you want to come up to Glastonbury and do the song? Because at the time I did a song with him mm-hmm. called Where's the G's, and so he's like, "Do you want to come up to Glastonbury and do Where's the G's? I'm performing at Glastonbury, and I'm like, "Okay, yeah, sure." Yeah. I'm like, "Okay." I hang up. I'm like, "What the fuck is Glastonbury?" So I start looking into Glastonbury, <laughs> oh and I realize God. it's this huge music festival it's literally massive. one of the biggest music festivals yeah. in the world that exists at the time yeah. it still is primarily and so we fly to london we meet him in london he's like yo it's going to take us about three hours maybe to get up to glastonbury oh uh, he's like we're going to pass stonehenge on the way i'm like we got to fucking stop <laughs> at stonehenge right because never in my life would i even think i would even get close to where it is he's like no yeah. no it's on the road just it's on the way <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. So it's like a museum. He's like, no, it's just on the side of the road. You just walk up to it. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, we'll, we'll stop. You'll see it. You'll, you'll see it on the road. <laughs> and so we're driving and we, we literally, we come around a curve and we're going up and you see Stonehenge 
just just I mean it's not even like a freeway, right? It's like yeah. two lanes on the right, two lanes on the you know, two lanes going, two lanes coming back. There's no barrier or anything. You literally yeah. just pull over on the side of the road yeah. and walk up to fucking Stonehenge. Bunch of rocks just right? There. Just sitting there. And so we walk up and we sit and it's very interesting when they tell you that these rocks are nowhere near here. They mm. come from thousands of miles away. Right. No one knows how they got here, whatever, whatever. And I'm just kind of caught up in the fact that yeah. I'm literally standing in front of Stonehenge. I'm from Port Arthur, Texas. This is a very big deal to me. And so we get back in the cars and we drive over to, to um, Glastonbury. And it's the first time I've ever had to get the, the police escort. So oh, we wow. get to a certain point, and then they come and get us and they guide us in. And so we go to the artist parking lot and then we're walking to the backstage area and it's only then that i realized exactly what glastonbury is i started seeing literally tens and tens of thousands of people yeah just kind of out in the open i'm like yo this is crazy and we're yeah. we're still on the peripheral right because these rascals at this point could not walk through the crowd for sure it's a big fucking deal yeah so we're kind of on the periphery of it and so we get to the backstage area and as we go in this dressing room first person i see is michael mckean wait who's that Michael McKean is a part of Spinal Tap. He's a comedian. Oh, wow. He does all the Wow. He does all of the improv movies. I love Spinal Tap. Right? And so this is the 25 year anniversary of Spinal Tap and it's a reunion concert. Oh wow. Right? So Dizzy goes on there's like Spinal Tap goes on before it, Dizzy. Spinal Tap is opening for Dizzy Rascal. Yes, this is a wow. huge deal. Wow. So I go to catch a couple of songs and just watch it. And they're not in costume or anything. Oh, wow. They're literally just in regular clothes playing Spinal Tap songs. It's a huge moment for me. Okay. I'm a big movie buff. And so I, I, I kind of grasp the situation of that. And I go back to the dressing room. And we're sitting there hanging out. And um, this was in the heyday of, like, LRG clothing. Mm -hmm. So I have some LRG on. Dizzy actually has a couple of outfits. He's like, fuck it. I've got LRG, too. I might wear that, too. <laughs> or whatever. And so... We're just kind of hanging backstage, waiting for his time to go on. Okay. So I'm like, yo, I need to piss. I need to find the bathroom. So I leave Dizzy's dressing room to go find the bathroom. And I literally see coming towards me Bruce Springsteen. Oh, man. Oh, no man. security, no assistants, no handlers, nothing. Just Bruce Springsteen, the boss, by himself. The boss. Backstage at Glastonbury. And I walk up. I'm like, you're the boss. <laughs> I'm like, you're the boss. You're fucking Bruce Springsteen. I say, I'm sorry. I'm from America. So I don't know if they know, which obviously Bruce Springsteen is a big deal around Bruce the world. Yeah. But I'm just like, I'm American. I know who the fuck you are. Like, you're a big deal. And the first thing I really noticed about Bruce Springsteen is how fucking short he is. Yeah. He's a very short man. Mm -hmm. He's not. But when you see him on stage and you watch Born in the USA and all these videos, and Dancing in the Dark, he's pulling Courtney Cox out of the right. audience. Right. There's just this aura around him that makes him feel six feet tall. But he's really a very small man. So I asked him, could I take a picture? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so somebody working backstage, I'm like, yo, take this picture. And it's an older gentleman. Oh, no. So I'm like, take this picture. And, you know, I'm like, did you get it? Did you get it? Yeah, I got it. And he asked me to phone back. And I realized there's no picture. <sighs> Bruce Springsteen leaves. I look at my phone. Oh, there is no man. picture of me and Bruce Springsteen. So he's literally stolen that moment from me. Oh, my God. And I'm just kind of like down in the dumps. And I go back in the dressing room and they can see it on my face. They're like, what's wrong? I'm like, you know, I just met Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> And Dizzy's like, what What did he say? What did he fucking say? Like, <laughs> I'm like, no, he, I asked him to take a picture. And he fucking wouldn't take it. No, no, no he took it. Yeah. The guy that took the picture fucked it up. <laughs> oh, that's fucked up. That's fucked up. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just kind of like out of it. And then they're like, okay, guys, it's time to go to the stage. And so I'm still like, you know, kind of in the dumps. Because mm -hmm. they fucked up my Bruce Springsteen picture. Mm -hmm. And 
So for when he comes out, Dizzy has on a suit at first. So he's like, like coming out like I'm the prime minister wow. of Britain. Like so, he comes out like in wow. a suit, and it's like a tearaway suit. So he eventually takes it off, and mm-hmm. you see his regular stage clothes. So we're backstage, and I can hear the people right. I, like the intro music is starting, I can hear the people screaming, and then he kind of walks out, and I like walk up to the stage, and I just froze because. There literally is no end of people. Wow. I've never been in that scenario before. I've done a lot of shows and a lot of big crowds or whatever, yeah. you know? But on the stage, I look to the left and I can't see the end of the people to the left. And I look to the right and there's literally no end of people. And it's the first time I'd ever been somewhere where there were two stacks, like sound stacks, right? So you go to an outdoor festival, right. outdoor concert or whatever, and there's the huge stack. On the stage. On, um, no, not on the stage, in the crowd, where on the, the sound man is at. Yeah, oh, yeah, in the yeah, yeah. Si- and In and, and the crowd area, where he's managing the sound so mm-hmm. that everybody can hear it. There's two Another of them. One, There's two. so many people. Wow. So that one guy is engineering for the first 50, 60,000 people. Mm-hmm. The other guy is engineering for the other 50, 60,000. I learned later that there's 125,000 people there. So many people. Right? In one place. And... When he does Bonkers, which is at the time the number one record in the world, right? right, Except in America. But literally every other country in the world is the number one record in the world, produced by Armin Van Halen. And then they all just start jumping up and down to this record when the break comes in. And it's like an ocean of people because you just see the ebbs and flows. Because of a lot of it, to be fair, is white people and they're not all jumping on the same beat. (laughs) So there's ebbs and flows of it. And it just literally... It looks like an ocean of fucking people. Wow. And my mind is blown. Queenie is there with me. We're looking and we're like, we've never seen anything like this. I wake up every day is a daydream. Every fear in my life ain't where it seems. I wake up just to go back to sleep. I got no shadow, but I've been too deep. I don't like care about any sex or fathers. Every race that is my kind of silence. Everybody says that I can't get a grip. But unless I'm not eating, give me the sleep. And then, like, I'm still overwhelmed by the moment. And then he's like, oh, yeah, and I got my my friend Bun B here. <laughs> Bun B, come on out. And you're like, you, me? Who, me? Yeah. You want me to come like, out? come out. And, you know, it's it's a faint amount of applause, which for 125,000 people is maybe 15, 20,000 people, <laughs> which is the most people that have ever cheered me on for anything. And the music comes on, and I realized, um, I, I, in that moment, I blanked. I drew a total blank. Oh, my god! I couldn't remember any of my lyrics oh my gosh. or anything. And I didn't even remember the hook until he started singing it. Wow. And then when it's time for me to rap, I just start freestyling. Wow. So I don't even know what it is I even said on the fucking stage that day. It was not my verse. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even like the first couple of bars of my verse. It was just all total freestyle type shit. And so my first 
Rock festival, music festival performance composed of a freestyle where I forgot all my words and froze up on the stage. Wow. Did Dizzy say anything to you afterwards? Like, what? What was that? Verse? No, no, no. I don't, I'm not even sure if he if, if he <laughs> said anything, made any mention of. If he did, I probably I, I probably don't remember because I was still very much in yeah. awe of the entire experience. The one thing that really blew my mind was the fact that, well, one, Springsteen's guitars were on stage. Oh wow! Right. So, and it was the first time I'd ever been that close to a rock performance or behind the scenes of a rock performance, and I didn't know that guitars have different guitars for different songs. Right. Right, so I'm watching them actually tune each one of his guitars on the side of the stage. The other thing is, is that he doesn't go on for about two and a half, maybe three more hours. Yeah. Right, Springsteen. But there are people at the front of the crowd with Springsteen signs. Wow. And the first thing I was thinking was like, how early did they get here to get to the front of this thing? There's a hundred thousand people here. Right to sit through. All of these opening acts, when they really, they're really just here to see Springsteen. Right. Like, that takes initiative, you know, for one. The second thing is, how do they pee? Because <laughs> you've got to go. You, you've got, at some point, you've got to pee, you've gotta right? Go. Yeah. But you can't move. You can't leave. You can't leave that spot. Yeah. First of all, if you realize in that moment that you have to piss, you're not going to make it to a porta potty anyway. Yeah. And you'll never get back. So that just informed me that there's a nice contingency of people that go to music festivals yeah. and either prepare to urinate like in a diaper or something like that, yeah. or are literally pissing themselves yeah. to just to be in position to see their favorite group. Group that, my friend, takes real initiative. That's uh, that's a real fan right there. Absolutely, I've never been a, a fan of anyone. In not, that sense, that ever much, in no. my mind, no. If I got to pee, I'm just gonna just just uh, videotape it or text me and let me know. Let me know how it went. But that's probably my that's that's easily the most people I've ever been in front of. Uh, second to that is with Beyonce at the rodeo. It was yeah. eighty thousand people. Wow. But I didn't freeze up that night because of the way the stage is centered in the field, in the middle of the arena, mm -hmm. and the way this the room is lit. The lights are on you; they're not on the crowd, mm -hmm. so you can't even really see the people. Right. When you're performing, you kind of just get to focus on yourself. Yeah. Wow. And that was the year after Dizzy at South by Southwest, or or before? No, that was before. Dizzy at Southwest? What with Beyonce? Yeah. No, that was after. That, that was, was after. after. Funny thing. Because you said you had to leave that. Yeah, so event. that was also the night I performed with Beyonce, which is, this is a Beyonce throwback here. 
The night I performed with Beyonce at the rodeo was also the first, one of the first UGK shows when Pimp was released from prison. That's right. Which was at South by Southwest. Another throwback. Yeah. That same night. So I literally had to go on stage with Beyonce, perform, leave, jump in a car, drive. Uh, literally, Red Boy drove between 90 and 100 miles an hour the entire way, pulled up right to the stage, not backstage. We literally drove yep. up to the door yep. that you walk through to, to go on stage, yep. got out of the car, grabbed a mic, and went straight on another stage. That's so wild. That same night and did UGK's first first South by Southwest show ever. Yeah. Uh, probably only the third performance by UGK since Pimp had been released. Wow. And people went ape shit that night. Yeah. Wow, what a day for you. One thing that's really sweet through all these stories, I'm pretty sure, I don't think there's one that she, maybe there's one that she, but Queenie is with you through most of these stories. Oh, yeah, Queenie's there for the Ryan Dirty. Yeah. Queenie is at the birthday bash. Yeah. Queenie is at the video shoot for yeah. Check Up On. She's probably at the studio, too, but yeah. may have stayed in a car, because yeah. that was her thing. She would normally like to just stay in the car. Yeah. And she's absolutely a Glastonbury. Yeah. That's so beautiful, man. So I just wanted to ask, just to kind of like tie things all together, like how do you feel like either you personally or y'all together as a couple have grown since that Ride and Dirty listening session? Um, well, for one, because of who I am and the world that I move in, she's had to learn to become more sociable because she very early she was standoffish. Mm -hmm. And because of that, people had the wrong idea and misconception of who she was. Mm -hmm. And everywhere we would go, people would be like, well, we know you don't take no shit. We know you don't fuck around, which is true. But Queenie's a very sweet person. She's a very kind individual, very loving. And once she gets to know you, she will let you into her world. You know this personally. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, without even really realizing it, I kind of helped to initiate this shift of artists bringing their, you know, their better half with them on the road. Because mm -hmm. up until then, I remember there was a time where Pimp was like, yo, Bun, you can't keep bringing your girl on the road and I'm like why because my girl be finding out and she wonder why I don't bring her <laughs> you know what I'm saying so but that that's one thing about my wife I've always wanted to share everything about me with her um, Mick Jagger made a song um, it's like from a solo album and the song says God gave me everything I want and I give it all to you. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about my relationship with Queenie. Like, any dreams that I've had have come true, mm -hmm. right? I pretty much met everybody I've wanted to meet, been around everybody I could ever want to be around, um, whether it's music, TV shows, movies. Only person I haven't met is Dr. Dre, mm -hmm. right? Oh, wow. I even, you know what I'm saying? That's the only person I haven't physically met, right? I have Ice Cube's number in my phone. I have Ice T's number in my phone. Like, mm -hmm. these guys are, this is who I used to stand in the mirror and wanted to fucking be. Mm -hmm. And now I, these people are my, they're not just mm -hmm. my friends. They're my contemporaries now. This mm -hmm. is a very strange thing as I look on my life and reflect on that kind of shit. And, um, and I know Queenie's a big fan of some of these things too. And so I've always wanted to take her with me so that she could kind of see my world from the perspective that I have. But then also, like, for example, I'm on tour now. It's called the Legends of Hip Hop Tour. And it's mm -hmm. me. Scarface, A-Ball, MJG, Mystical, uh, Juvenile, and DJ Quick. She's fans of everybody. Mm -hmm. Fans of all these guys. So I go on second in the tour. But we don't leave 
until the end of the night <laughs> because she wants every night she wants to fucking dance to Juvenile, back wow. that ass up, which is genuine, genuinely, probably, generally, probably the last song of the night. Yeah. And but she wants to dance to that song, and she wants to hear Mary Jane mm-hmm. by Scarface. So we have to stay now through the entirety of the tour, mm-hmm. like the entire night. Mm-hmm. We've done at this point, we've done this particular tour at least forty times. Right. And every fucking night, like doesn't every get old fucking night, it does. No, it does not get over. <laughs> And these are the few things, because there's a lot of shows that we go to the club and it's just me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if she's seen one Bun B show, she's seen them all. <laughs> right? So whenever I have these shows with other people, it's it's good for her, right? She's yeah. like, oh, great. It's not murder again, even though I do murder. It's like, it's not that again, even though murder's like the highlight for her of a Bun B show. It's kind of like, okay. yada, 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 murder, and then yada, 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 let's go home. Did you, we got the money. Yeah. But when I do these shows and tours with other people, it allows her... To not just be Bun B's wife, mm-hmm. but just to be a, just a genuine hip hop fan. Mm-hmm. And it's moments like that, even though I'm ready to fucking go because mm-hmm. I've already performed, I've got my money, let's get the hell out of here. It's good to watch my wife enjoy herself because there were so many years where she just would not allow herself to let go and cut loose. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've come a long way and we've been able to take our kids to shows. Mm-hmm. Now we take our grandkids to shows. <laughs> You know, it's crazy to be able to grow together with someone like that and to be able to share everything like that. You know, and now at this point, you know, the the cool thing is that even during the UGK years, I would take her to the business meetings and have her in the room just to have a frame of reference for what's going on. And even more so after Pimp passed away, that she understands, you know, who it is that she'll be talking to what the value of the music is and what the estate would be worth, God forbid, should something happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I don't hide money from my wife. I don't hide things from my wife. My life is an open book for her. But it's important that she knows to, what to do and who she should be doing it with right. and what the value of the estate is so that she doesn't give away a million dollars worth of shit for 50 grand. Right. You know? Exactly. But she she's the right, and she's very smart too, Like. She's always picking up on things that I don't pick up on, especially with relation to fans. Oh wow! You know, she she she's like, "Yo, you need to say something to the dude in a green shirt." Even saying every word <laughs> right there, something like stuff like that. She always finds these things out. And, you know, she's a she's a great friend. She's an amazing partner, and she's the best wife, mother, and grandmother I could have ever picked. Wow. Well, she's yeah. not my grandmother, right. but but to have to be grandparents with, exactly. she's the best. Yes. And everybody loves Queenie. Everybody loves Queenie. Yeah. And Queenie loves you. Oh, thank you. Would you say that she has made you a more patient person? Because you're talking about things she wants to wait till the end of the show. This is that one of the ways you no, think you change? No, no, no. She's made me more aware of uh, things, right? Because okay. I can be very nonchalant about shit mm-hmm. and just kind of like, eh, you know, it's not a big deal. And she'd be like, no, this is a big deal. You need to pay attention to this because this, this, and that. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, for real? She'd be like, yes, for real. Every night this happens, this, this, and this. I'm like, Really? She's like, yeah. She's like, you don't pay attention because you're looking at the crowd. And I'm very um, very self-conscious when I perform. Mm-hmm. Like, if I make a mistake or if, like, the phone drops the music too soon or too late, whatever, I feel like I've made a mistake in front of everybody and everybody can see it. And she's like, look, nobody knows anything's <laughs> going wrong until you act like something's going wrong. <laughs> they all think all of this shit is just how the show goes. Yep. So if you don't make a big deal out of it, they're not going to make a big deal out of it, and you can just keep going. Because I would get 
Whenever something would happen wrong, you know, the sound would mess up or anything like that. Some of these things we control, some of these things we can't control. But whenever something would happen, I would get very caught up in that moment and very angry in the moment. Yeah. And like, I would turn around and look at Truck or look at Bone like, motherfucker, I will kill you right now. <laughs> because, and I learned this from the UGK days. UGK didn't, we didn't have music videos, right? We didn't have magazine covers or anything like that. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of exposure to the fans. So the first and only time people would get to see us would be on stage. Okay. And so if there was any imperfection on stage, and especially in the early days, people didn't know what a sound man was or what that was. So if you went to a show and your sound was fucked up, that was your fault. Right. That's why you always hear stories about rappers beating up the sound man. <laughs> because you fuck up the only connection that some of us will ever have to our base. Right. Which is the time that we share when we're on stage. And it's, it's this reciprocal energy, right? The crowd is hyped. So you get there, they make you hype, you get hype on stage, it makes them hyper. There's all this reciprocal energy and any break in that flow is very hard to retain. It's very hard, I mean, very hard to, to bring back. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that kind of thing happens, I feel like, oh God, they just fucked up the connection with me and the people. Right. I got to figure out how to get it back, you yeah. know? There's nothing worse as a performer than having to start a song over. Yep. Because when they hear those first initial few notes to the song, they're like, oh shit, here we go. And it's hard for them to keep that excitement for a second. Right. Yeah. Or to act like so because they don't know what the next song is going to be. Right. Until they hear the music. Right. And it's take hard for them to get that. Take away. The, yeah. And then you're like, okay, let's do this again. Especially like murder. There's nothing yeah. worse to me than fucking up like murder or maybe big pimping. Yeah. Right. Because universally, that's the biggest song that we're known for, and that's that. And unless you're an old school fan, big pimping is usually three and sipping on scissor. Those are the moments you're waiting for. Mm -hmm. If you're a Bun B fan. Murder is the moment that you're waiting for, mm -hmm. right? And so once, if we ever blow those moments, like I've always said, if I ever fuck up the lyrics to murder or something on stage, my career is over. Because <laughs> so that's really all anybody <laughs> wants to know. Can I still say murder with the same intensity and breath control that they're used to? Yeah. And the day that they feel like I can't do that anymore, I'm of no use to these people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Well, I hope and pray that uh, that you keep that ability for a long, long time. Well, if I ever mess it up, I'll just say, you know what? Take the music out. I want to do this acapella. <laughs> There's tricks. And, There's tricks and that trade. moment is, that makes it even better Yeah. for them. Yeah. Like, murder acapella is a big thing. True, true. That's a good point. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down and, and telling these stories with me. Thank you for having me. And now I have to lot. get out of here because I know my wife is expecting me. Sorry, Queenie, um, but we made some hummus for you, so please don't be mad. Man, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you, man. I think this is a very interesting take on conversations. It's not the usual conversation that people have with artists and makes it much more personable because it's not about what these moments mean to you. It's about what the moment means to the artist. Yep. That's a totally different perspective. You got something going. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. This my time So you can kind of piece this together by listening to other episodes of the podcast, but Bon and I met in the summer of 2010. I had just turned 20 years old and I'd been given the reins to the hip hop TV show at the University of Texas. 
You can hear the story of how Bun and I first met by listening to the Lupe Fiasco episode of this podcast, but I'll add some details for you since you're here now. I was young and naive about the way things worked and viewed Bun as a demigod, so I thought it would take me years and years to ever meet him, let alone interview him. There I was, in the summer before my sophomore year of college, helming a TV show without a name, standing face to face with Bun B. Somehow, I wasn't overly nervous. That night was the album release party for his Trilogy album, and our TV station's entertainment director, Tabitha Lipkin, told me she wanted me to rename our hip-hop show and make it my own. The show used to be called ATX Most Wanted, And it was an award-winning show run by people like Courtney Cox, Jared Couch, a.k.a. Jay Couch, Terry Williams, Amanda Sargent, Arielle Bradford, Kevin Jack, Ethereal, and a whole bunch of other people whose names I can't find online right now. (laughs) But they were an award-winning show with brand sponsorships, a real solid producing team, and a knack for landing lots of big guests. When I first got involved with the TV station, I was trying to join the show any way I could but I never seemed to be in the station at the same time as the ATX Most Wanted crew. So I took matters into my own hands. I saw that one of my favorite rap groups at the time, the Cool Kids, were coming to Austin for a concert at a venue called the Mohawk. And I had my own handheld camera, so I emailed the manager of the Mohawk, a friendly guy by the name of Cody, and asked if he could help me get an interview. And sure enough, he did. So I brought my best friend Jeff along as cameraman, And we did the interview with no microphones, so the audio is just absolutely terrible. But we did it. And that was the spring of 2010, and a lot of the ATX Most Wanted folks had graduated by then. So when I finally tracked down the few remaining members and told them I had an interview with the cool kids, they were ecstatic. That was my key to joining the show. I I appeared on air as a host for the rest of the semester, and there are some really embarrassing clips of me on the internet that you can find if you're really, really interested. If you do find them, send a screenshot, tag me in it on uh, Twitter, Instagram, because I love to embarrass myself online. Anyway, by the time I had the reins of the show, the rest of the ATX Most Wanted team had graduated. So I felt a lot of pressure to keep their legacy alive. And I had to start from scratch, essentially. So that summer, I had already landed interviews with Texas rap heroes Zero and Slim Thug. I had a little momentum, but that Bun B interview was huge. Tabitha told me she wanted me to come up with a new name for the show to really make it my own. So I came up with a very simple name, Longhorn Hip Hop, which was our school's mascot plus the culture we were attempting to document. And I figured if it sounded good when Bun said it, then the name would stick. And so, sure enough, Bun said it, it sounded amazing, and that's the name we ran with. It took me a while to actually earn Bun's trust. I had to earn the trust of basically everyone around him first. His managers, Bone and Red, his photographer, Kalele, his graphic designer, Kelly, his DJ, Damo, and a whole bunch of other people. They would invite me to his events all the time, and I would drive from Austin to wherever they were in Texas to be there. And a big regret of mine is that back when I hated Drake, they invited me to come to a video shoot for Bun and Drake's song, Put It Down, in Houston. I had a test the next day, and I can't even remember what class it was for, but in hindsight, there's absolutely no way that test was more important than getting the chance to hang out with a young Drake. Anyway, if you listen to the Hannibal Burris episode, you can hear all about the weekend we spent with Drake a few years later. Eventually, though, I got in good with Bun, 
and for a long time I was still very intimidated to be around him. I could barely talk. I was so scared of saying the wrong thing, but eventually I figured out that if I just got comfortable with being myself, I might have to put up with some roasting, but I'd be alright. And sure enough, Bon has opened more doors for me than any other person in my life. It's been incredible. And our relationship has grown to the point where now I can create opportunities for him. And that's a really good feeling. That's, that's a dream come true. So I'll save my sappiness for another day, but just know that Bun has seen me come a long, long way. He's advanced my career. He's protected me, championed me, made sure I didn't go home hungry and put a little bit of money in my pocket. I'm endlessly grateful for his presence in my life. And I just wanna say Bun, thank you so much for doing this episode of the Nostalgia Mixtape. We'll catch you next time. I'm up early as my nigga don't say a dough after night time. Little type of blaze on the hoop is moving, don't throw the pipeline. PMC bitch, holla at your bitch, now your bitch on my team. Gotta buy another stick of green, lay some with a methazine. Candy sweets, a candy bitch, you looking at a candy boy. I done came down main and pop drunk, hit the switch on my candy toy. We all young ghetto boys, that's why we act this way. Tryna see a million dollars, hoping these niggas don't blast today. Pro smoke, pro choke, anti-broke, conservative liberal, left wing slang and right wing hanging in criminal court is civil. In the middle of reality, unsolved mysteries riddle. Knocking over fat cats and getting my dogs some bits and gibbles. On notepads, I scribble like rippers that'll make you think. Snap so hard it'll break your synchronicity. Fucking take a drink, I fake it, blink it, poof. We disappear into a shrouded doja. Cloud composers, all nighters like folders, but bitch, I try to toast you. Rolling Bitch, I'm working wood wheel. Coming down so free, coming down so free. Nigga, 
steel, steel, bitch, I'm working wood, wheel. Ripping the steel, nigga, I'm so real, nigga, I'm working wood, wheel. Smoking on bionic, bubonic, chronic, it's so ironic. Sipping gin and tonic, supersonic, like Johnny Mnemonic. We crash your party, piss on your parade, serve like it's lemonade. From Paris to the Palisades to the promenade. Bomb and fade, close as the car break world's as plain as day. That's the game we came to play, it don't change, ain't a thing to say. We're dying in the A-sign, young player from the side by the blaze of pine. I'm trying to find me a box with some good mob. I know you biggie bitches know what I'm talking about. Ain't got no time to play good, let me get a little soda and some good stuff. Bitch, didn't you know who the fuck I was? Off in the street looking for the good stuff. Your man, so he's trying to fuck fast. I'm a fuck slow. How the fuck you gon' out fuck James? Ho, like Teddy Pinnacle, where you better let it go. Getting ready for head doctors, show shockers, body rockers, late night dough knockers. Gotta break us off, big pimping, baby. We hold clockers, bitch bosses, taking no losses. Best go ask Lil Wee Wee. Ben, I teach yo, we crack a danger ray about Big Pee Wee. Baby brother, sweet James Jones, gorilla pimping at his finest. Leaving haters and whole hustlers behind us, rewind us. Touch like Midas, these bitch ass niggas, they studying biters. Could not recite us, come to our show and bitch niggas try to fight us. Whole niggas screaming, talking, trill niggas bust and leave. How the fuck you gonna go to war when you bitch ass niggas ain't got no cheese? Blowing big deal, million dollar deal. Nigga, I'm so thrilled, bitch, I'm working wood wheel. Huh. When it die one time for the king, Lil' Jay.